0: We're going to spend some time studying the scriptures together now. This is a kind of central part of what we do every week. We believe that the Bible speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself. Uh, So we want to look into what he has to say. We're starting a new series called Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? We're going to look at that answer from the Gospel of John. So if you have a Bible, you can open your Bible to the Gospel of John. If you don't have a Bible, we've put some under the chairs. It's page 886. You can turn to page 886 in those black Bibles. Gospel of John is the last gospel, it's the fourth one, so it's the fourth book of the New Testament. You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, but it was also the latest one to be written, uh, and so it has a, a different kind of feel from the other gospels. Often the other three gospels are referred to as the synoptic gospels, which means they have the same view. They're not identical, they don't have the exact same view, but they just kind of follow in a very similar pattern, they have a lot of overlap, whereas John is very different. We're told at the end of the Gospel of John, John says there were so many things that Jesus said and do, uh, did, we, we couldn't like have enough books to handle all of it, right? So we understand that Jesus said and did a lot of things, and then the authors had to choose what they were going to put in the book for us. Um, and so we get a different perspective from all of the Gospels, but it's like the most unique Perspective from John. So I think we'll enjoy embarking on this together as we try to figure out who Jesus really was. Uh, one of the analogies I've used in the past is uh, if you were to compare, say, the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of John, it would be like the difference between a documentary, like a historical show, and a regular movie that's edited around one primary theme. Uh, so the Gospel of John is is more unified, more coherent, more artistic. That doesn't mean it's not true. That just means it's more refined. Another way you might think about it is a piece of furniture, right? You could have like a rough cut piece of furniture, and then you could have a very finely sanded um, and very well taken care of and kind of perfected piece of furniture, or you can just have like your basic piece of furniture. And it's, they're just different styles. Uh, they, they come at us from different directions. And so my prayer is that this is exactly what we need as a community uh, in 2019. As we look at the Gospel of John, what we're going to see in chapter 1 is an introduction to the themes of the book, right? So there are going to be a lot of different themes in the book that he's going to just begin to introduce to us in Chapter 1. And if you've ever been at a musical, you'll know what this feels like. When you go to a musical, the orchestra or band will often, at the beginning, before the show starts, they'll kind of warm up and play little snippets of every song you're going to hear during the show. Have you all ever been to one of those shows where they do that? Um, I was thinking about, there's also this like techno music where the music starts before the beat drops. The same kind of thing, right? It's kind of teasing you. It's like, okay, it's coming. It's coming, right? That's what John is doing here in chapter one. He's, he's kind of laying out these seams. We're, we're not going to get to go as deep as we want today, but you're going to come back the next week and come back again. And we're going to go deeper and deeper as we move through the gospel of John. So let's read chapter one. We'll read verses one through 18. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Here he's talking about John the Baptist. nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ." No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let me pray and ask God to help us. We've got big topics. Um, Not really enough time, as I said, to go in depth, so we're just going to pray that God would help us hit the things we need today. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We pray that it would speak to us, that we would hear you. Uh, We pray that you'd help us to focus on the most important things for us today and in this moment. We pray that your spirit would empower us to, to respond to these things. Um, to follow you because of these things. We thank you that you love us and you've revealed yourself as love through Christ, and we pray in his name. Amen. So the first big idea I'm sorry, this is now I'm hot. I was cold this morning, now I'm hot again. I just can't I think I'm getting to that age where my temperature fluctuates, you know, I don't know what it is. Um, we're going to look at this kind of starting with the idea of the word, and I, I want us to think about what the word word means. I know it's hard to follow, but the word word, we're told, is, is who Jesus is. God reveals himself as the word in Jesus. And what I want to lay out for you is that it's a very broad word, right? Word can mean a lot of things. In modern English, word can mean Um, something that you speak. It can mean something that you can say. It can mean an idea. It can have kind of a connotation of of reason or logic. It could also have the connotation of just interaction or creativity. And, And all of that is there. But a lot of times, scholars write these books about all the different possible meanings and everything it could mean when I think it's most helpful for us to say, well, John was a Jewish boy before he wrote this gospel And so let's go back to the Jewish scriptures to the Old Testament and say, how's the word word, the word of God, how is that used in the Old Testament? And I think when we look back at that, we'll see a really helpful outline that will help us kind of organize what we see in John chapter 1. And there are three things that you'll see again and again in the Old Testament. One is that the word of God creates. God is a creator and he creates through his speech and through his word. And then secondly, we'll see that God's word is something that saves and rescues us. So God is a rescuer. He's a savior, and his word does that. We see that in the Old Testament. And then finally in the Old Testament, we see that God's word reveals. And the word I'm going to use today in my outline is fulfills, right? It fulfills. It, It grows. It shows us more. It reveals. gives us the information we need. It guides us. It instructs us. But in Jesus particularly, we'll see this flesh itself out as fulfillment, Okay? So God's word creates, rescues, and fulfills. And we're going to see that in the person of Jesus himself. And so the first thing that we're going to focus on when we ask ourselves, who is Jesus? We're going to say, well, first of all, Jesus is creator. Who is Jesus? Jesus is creator. What what does that mean? Well, let's look at what he says here. Starting again in in verse 1, he says, in the beginning, I'll stop there for a minute. What should that remind us of? In the beginning... There should be a Genesis 1-1. There's a literary echo. Again, to use kind of musical analogy here, you're, you should hear the, the rhythm and the melody of, of Genesis 1. In the beginning, John's trying to pull us back and say, this is God. He's the one that started everything. This is one of the primary differences between the Gospel of John and the other Gospel writers. He goes all the way back, right? He goes all the way back to the very beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Really important phrase, and I just want to clarify up front, this is not the only place that this idea is taught in the New Testament. This idea of the unity and diversity of God, God in three persons, we call it the Trinity, is taught many other places in the New Testament. I'd love to talk to you more about that afterwards. Um, We can kind of go into more detail, but let's stick to here. There's two things we're told, that the word Jesus was God and he was with God. So there's a sense in which it's one what, one God, and three who's. I think that's the easiest way to summarize the doctrine of the Trinity. Three who's, three persons that seem to interact and have community and love for one another, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but one God. And when you go back and you study the writings of the early church fathers that built up into the Nicene Creed and council, you see that what these guys were trying to do is they were trying to say, this is what the scripture says. And so some people, uh, cults like to say, well, the Trinity's not in the Bible. Well, there are a lot of words that are not in the Bible. We, just, we use it as a summary. It's a summarizer of all these things that we see in the Bible, right? So we don't have to quote all of John 1. We just say, we believe in the Trinity. But What we're saying there is we believe that Jesus was with God and Jesus was God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, three persons. Um, so I know it's a very difficult doctrine, and I want to also say as I'm explaining it that we want to be careful not to try to overexplain these mysterious things, right? So I gave you a basic explanation, but the deeper you go, you can, you can kind of start to get into trouble, right? It can be kind of confusing. I want to recommend a book for you that helps us to understand that this is a, a symbol and an image of God's love for us, the Trinity, the idea of this diversity and unity of God. It's called Delighting in the Trinity, Uh, It's a book by Michael Reeves. Um, It's got some kind of heady stuff, right? The Trinity's tough, but his real focus is to help you see that it's a source of God's love for you, right? That this is a picture of the gospel. He even starts off the book saying, you know, when you talk about God's love, that's very comforting and warming to us, right? But when you say God is a Trinity, you're just kind of like, ugh, right? He, He tries to merge those ideas and help you to see that God as Trinity is God as love for us. And father son and Holy spirit so that 's a great book i 'd recommend you uh, buy that book for yourself this one 's my copy, so don 't take my copy right, but you can come look at it, flip through it after the service if you want to see it um, it 's really well done but this is an important doctrine that teaches us that we didn 't grow out of or we weren 't created out of god 's loneliness right it wasn 't like God was so empty and lonely in eternity past no God was full and in love and in community Father, Son and Holy Spirit and he creates out of the overflow of his love and grace, which I think is a really important thing for us to understand, and that, that book does a good job of teasing that out. So let's go on to verse 2. We're not moving very fast, are we? Verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So little pop quiz. Did Jesus make everything? Yes. Jesus made everything. You, you failed the quiz. Nobody answered. I'll, I'll read the verse again. You, you must not have heard it. All things were made through him. How many things? All things. And what does the, the word mean in Greek? All? It, it means all, right? Okay. And without him was not anything made that was made. He's just saying it again in a different way. Just in case you missed it, he made everything. There wasn't anything made that he didn't make, right? He, he made it all. So this goes against, again, the cultic teaching that Jesus was made. Jesus wasn't made. Jesus is God. So that's part of how we understand Jesus as being God. Verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. So Jesus as creator makes him the source of all life, and that also makes him the source of all light. So as I said, this gets kind of confusing, and as we move through the gospel of John, John's going to pull out these themes more. Right? He's going to talk more about Jesus as the source of life. He's going to talk more about Jesus being the light in the darkness. He's going to pull out these themes more and more. And so we're going to get to go deeper in them. But just for right now, we can understand that these things all go together. God's the one that created all things, and he created all things to have life, right? If you look out and you see a world that's just teeming with life, and that reflects the overflow and the grace and the creative character of the creator. And we also understand that light gives life, right? Anybody know what photosynthesis is, right? It's God has created this world where sunlight gives life to things. And we also know it in just a practical sense, right? You're walking through a dark room that you haven't been in before. You trip over things. You hurt yourself when you can't see, right? That's how people fall into holes and get in trouble. So light gives us direction. We can see. It also gives us life, And these images are going to come up again and again throughout this book. He's just really just beginning with them here. He says in verse five, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Sometimes that's translated, the darkness has not understood it, and the word can really mean both. So a lot of scholars just think, well, he's just doing a play on words on purpose here. So the darkness didn't really understand the light, right? There's this kind of this fight, the spiritual battle between evil and good. And the darkness doesn't really like the light, but the darkness also can't beat the light. It can't overcome the light. And so that's what he's laying out here. He's like, yeah, there's this world of darkness, but God is the light giver, and he's bringing more light. He's bringing more life. He's the creator. We owe our allegiance to him. So what does this mean for us? Um, When I try to understand how we should respond to the reality that Jesus is creator, I immediately thought of Romans chapter 1. Because Romans chapter 1 talks about the problem when we don't respond properly to God as creator. So, so what does that look like? In Romans chapter 1, it gives us kind of the negative. The negative is that we as people, it's a natural human condition, we suppress the truth. And it says in Romans one twenty one that we do not honor God as God or give thanks to him for being God, for being the one who created all things. So the way this plays out is, is we, we keep drifting towards loving the creation itself, myself, you, food, drink, jobs, the outdoors, whatever it might be, right? We love the things more than the one who made the things. And that's the eternal problem. That's the, we're just replaying Adam and Eve again and again and again, right? The big failure of Adam and Eve is they're put in the garden and God says, trust me don't take this, trust me. And they say, we'd rather have that instead of trusting you. And we do the same thing. We just do it again and again and again. Romans 1 says what we're doing there is we're suppressing the truth about reality. We're not honoring the creator as the creator. And we're not giving thanks to him for creating the things that he's created. I think a really cool image of this to kind of jump off of what John is doing here with light is in the natural world, the way flowers and plants turn towards the sun. Have y'all ever seen this with the, you might have a tree. I have a tree that kind of grows a lot lot more on one side than the other because that's the sunny side, right? Or you'll see flowers that close up at night, and then they'll open during the day. A lot of plants do this kind of thing in different ways. I grabbed a picture here, sunflowers, just because they're pretty, right? But sometimes you'll see flowers turning towards the sun. You'll see flowers opening up towards the sun. I think that's just a little image God has given us in the natural world to show what our posture should be towards God. We should have this posture of turning towards the light, seeing God, the true light, spiritual light here, right? Just to be clear, God is not the sun, okay? Um, this This is a symbolism thing here. But he's saying God is the source of supernatural light, right? Spiritual light. He's the real light in the universe. The sun is just like a lesser light. And we should turn and open up towards God. We should be giving thanks to Him as the one who provides for us. We should be turning towards Him and giving honor to Him, worshiping Him. Worship, the word merely means to ascribe worth to something. So how do you do that in your life? What does that look like for you to honor God and give thanks to Him? Instead of the negative in Romans 1 where it says we suppress the truth, we don't honor God. We turn away from Him. We'd rather have His stuff, but we don't want Him, right? I would argue the only real way for us to enjoy his stuff is to honor him the most. When we actually honor God as God, then we can truly enjoy the stuff he gives us as he's made us. Because what happens is when we we turn to the stuff and turn away from God, then we begin making gods out of the stuff. Because humans are wired to worship. We're made to worship something. We're made to give our hearts to something. So what are you going to give your heart to? If you give your heart to God, then you can enjoy everyday life. Then you can enjoy your job. Then you can enjoy your friends. Then you can enjoy your spouse. And you can enjoy food and drink and the little things in life. But when you give yourself to those things ultimately and turn from God, those things don't make very good gods. They, they can't take care of you the way God can. And so it breaks us. It, it twists us. So what does it look like to, to see Jesus as creator, to, to worship him as creator, to turn towards him as creator? Uh, throughout the Old Testament, we have some, some interesting examples of worship, of honor and thanks. Uh, I wanna start with a really weird one. Here's, here's a weird one. King David, when the Ark of the Covenant came into Jerusalem, the Ark of the Covenant was this golden box where they held God's law inside of it, and it symbolized God's presence. So when it came into Jerusalem, he praised God with his words, but you know what else he did? he danced. That's pretty weird, right? Like, that's pretty far out there. Um, I'm not real comfortable with dancing. I'm not going to dance in front of you right now, right? But I think it's helpful to kind of see, what are these extreme examples? What might that look like in my life? Maybe you're not comfortable dancing before the Lord. King David, he got in trouble with his wife for it, as a matter of fact. But what does it look like for you to give honor to God? Maybe it's not dancing. Maybe it's just bowing in humility. Maybe it's just utter brokenness, when King Solomon, King David's uh, son, was dedicating the temple later on, he built the temple where God's presence was revealed. It was so filled with God's glory that the priests had to stop what they were doing. They, they couldn't continue. So it's kind of interesting. You have two different responses there, right? One, David's just going crazy, dancing and singing. The other, the priests with King Solomon, they just had to stop, right? Have you, have you ever responded that way where you're like, I can't do anything. I'm so overwhelmed with God's goodness, God's greatness I just I can't move like the psalmist says be still and know that I am God how do you respond to God's greatness as creator how do you tell him God you are worthy how do you honor him how do you give thanks to him I joked about this a few months ago one of the common Christian practices that a lot of Christians do is is giving thanks at a mealtime that's a great practice right It's easy to make fun of because a lot of times it's just this thing. You teach your kids and your kids do it and your kids do it. Nobody really knows what they're doing. You start to lose touch with why you're doing it. Uh, A lot of Christians start to think that you just pray before a meal so it won't poison you, right? It's like this magic thing or you're superstitious about it. But really the practice in the New Testament is you're giving thanks. You're saying, God, you've provided for me. So I'm going to give thanks. That's why Christians should, should pray before a meal or after a meal or during a meal. Just thanks, God, for providing for me. How do you you talk to Jesus about his role as creator? How do you honor him? Other biblical postures are are bowing, um, laying on your face, speaking with your words, raising your hands. There's a lot of different postures to do this. The point is, are you honoring God? Are you saying, Jesus, you're the creator. I, I see this, you've made all things. Thank you for creating me, for creating this world, Show me my proper place in it. A lot of commentators also make a, a big deal of how the interplay between light and life, when you, when you look at the way the word light is used in the Old Testament, is it is a, a word of happiness and celebration and rejoicing, right? We just concluded in our culture a festival of lights, so to speak, right? Uh, for a lot of American Christians, Christmas is a festival of lights. It's a lot of celebration and happy food and presents and and. Pretty lights, right? What we're doing is we're just trying to celebrate God's goodness. We're trying to rejoice. And that's part of the image that is going on here. What does it look like for you to celebrate Jesus as creator? The next thing that we see as we move through the text is that Jesus is also rescuer. So he's just like in the Old Testament, God's word creates, Jesus is creator. We also see in the Old Testament that God's word saves and rescues his people. And so we see that again in Jesus. Jesus is God's word that rescues and saves us. In John 1-6, the apostle John that wrote this book, just to clarify for you, is now talking about John the Baptist. So two guys named John, common name, right? So John the apostle writes this book, and he never really names himself throughout the book. He just talks about himself as like Jesus' friend and that kind of thing. But here he's talking about John the Baptist. So in verse 6, it says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. So John the Baptist's job, you see this in this gospel and all the gospels, his job was to help people believe in Jesus, to get them ready, to prepare the way. And it says, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Verse 8, he was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So just to clarify, everybody had to clarify this because John had such a big following. And you see this in a lot of the Gospels. People are like, are are you the man, right? Like, are you the Messiah? Are you the one we've been waiting for? And he's like, no, 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 I'm not. I'm just telling you to repent of your sin and turn to God, and he will forgive you. But, But Jesus is the man, right? And he points that out in all the different Gospels. We see John the Baptist preparing the way and telling people to go to Jesus. So in verse nine, he says, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, Yet the world did not know him. So here he sees the conflict, right? Just like we saw in Genesis. If you go back and read Genesis, you've got God creating everything. And Adam and Eve are in this perfect relationship with God. And then they fall and they turn away from God. We see the same kind of thing here with Jesus. Jesus is the one that made the world. Jesus comes into the world. But then people don't respond to him properly, right? We don't turn to him the way that we should. He was in the world. The world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. Verse 11 says, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So he's now shrinking it down. It's not just the world, right? He made the whole world, and the whole world did not respond to him properly. Even his own people, the Jewish people, the special tribe that God has set aside just for the purpose of revealing his goodness and salvation to the world, even that special tribe didn't receive their Savior and their King, Jesus. He goes on in verse uh, 12, but to all who did receive him. Who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So he says, Here's the situation Jesus is God. He did make everything, He is the creator. He's also the savior, because He came into the world as creator, and the world rejected Him. And not only did the world reject Him, but His people rejected Him. But you know what He did? He saved us anyway. That's the good news. We're not saved by being God's special people. We're not saved by responding so well to Jesus. We're saved by what Jesus has done for us. And that's what he's trying to hammer home here. He's saying it's not by man's will, right? It's not like what I do. It's not my strength. It's not by blood, right? It's not a natural birth. It's not by the the will of a husband is what it's saying here, right? It's not like a husband deciding, hey, honey, let's have kids. It's, It's not that kind of birth, right? This is a spiritual birth. And again, another theme that John's going to unpack more and more for us, like in John 3 and later on in the gospel. He's going to talk about the new birth and being born again. He's saying it's supernatural. You can't birth yourself spiritually. You can't like go to the right school and get in good with God because you've gone to the right school. You can't be raised in the right neighborhood and say, hey, God, you better respect me because I grew up in this neighborhood or I have this degree or I have this job. Or look at me, God, I helped an old lady across the street. Now you have to love me. No, you can't, you can't get yourself there. Only God can save you. That, that's what he's trying to say here. It's only God's power that makes us sons and daughters of God. By definition, that's, that's what grace is. It's not something you can earn, but it's what God has done for you. Do you recognize that? What are the powers that you're running to? What are the things that you're thinking can save you? And our job is to, to turn from those and to turn to Jesus. And it's a paradox here because he's saying nothing you can do, nothing you can do, nothing you can do. So what do you do? You grab hold of Jesus. Well, that's kind of doing something, right? So Christianity, we talk about this all the time. It, it is a built-in paradox. We have to admit that. This is a paradox. This is kind of hard to describe. And so Christians, you know, kind of tend to be on one side of that spectrum or the other. Some Christians are like, you can't do anything, don't do anything, give, you know, let go and let God. The other side of the spectrum is you've got to choose God, you've got to grab God, you've got to, you know, decide for God, you know, very decision-focused. Here he's mixing together both pictures. And he's saying it's a tension. For us to be saved is to be saved utterly by God. And what does that look like? Grabbing desperately onto Jesus. <laughs> like, Jesus, you're my only option. You're my only hope, and we just grab onto him. Great quote by Corey Ten Boom. Someone said, what are you going to do? Uh, when you go to heaven, the first thing, you know, when you see Jesus, what, what's your response going to be? And She's like, I'm just going to grab onto his ankles, right? I'm just going to, like, throw myself on the ground and grab hold of him. It's a great picture here. And John, he's saying, we, we reach out. The word is receive, and receive sounds pretty passive, but can also be take hold. It's like, I'm, I'm receiving this, right? Are you going to take hold of Jesus? Are you going to grab onto him? Are you going to receive him giving himself for you? The gospel picture is that Jesus gave himself for you. He came for you. He's pursuing you. He's chasing you. You're running into the darkness. He's coming after you with his light. Will you receive him? Will you entrust yourself to him? He is your rescuer. He's my rescuer. He's our only hope. We can't rescue ourselves. Again, that's what John is trying to lay out. And this is in utter contradiction to what all the religious people of his day thought. He came to his own, right? The, the people that Jesus fought with the most were the religious people. So warning, just by, by being here, you're marking yourself as a religious person. That's very dangerous because religion can't save you. Only Jesus can save you. So don't think your attendance here can save you or your giving can save you or your service can save you. Only Jesus can save you. We give, we attend, we get involved. We, we do spiritual things as a response to what Jesus has done for us. And that's what he's trying to unpack We can't save ourselves. He uses this language of being a child of God. And this calls to to mind the images of, of being an orphan. Paul uses this language a lot in Galatians and then also in Romans. In Romans 8, it's a great quote that says, you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received a spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. When you cling to Jesus you're clinging to the hope that God is adopting you and and making you his child by his power. He's giving you the right to become a child of God. He's giving you the status of belonging to his family. And so all those times when you felt all alone, don't think that the other things that we run after in life can somehow give us an identity or give us a family or make us belong. Only God can make you belong in his family. So he's the only one that we can entrust ourselves to. He's the only rescuer that can save us. So the last one I want us to look at here is this idea that Jesus is the fulfiller. So who is Jesus? Jesus is creator. He's rescuer. He's also fulfiller. I said I was kind of wrestling with the, the right word for this. In the Old Testament, God's word reveals, it teaches. Um, and a lot of what John's going to do here is to say, There's all this stuff that God's word uh, revealed to us and taught us in the Old Testament. And now Jesus is gonna like take that and give us even more. So he's the fulfiller. He gives us the fullness of what we had kind of a shadow of in the Old Testament. We had kind of a taste in the Old Testament. Now we get more in Christ. So it's a major theme in the gospel of Matthew, the fulfillment of Jesus. Matthew is the gospel that focuses the most on this concept here. Uh, John focuses on it. A lot as well, but Matthew hits it really hard. Starting in verse 14, he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So here he's using language that should remind us of the Old Testament because the number one promise in the Old Testament is that God would be our God and we would be his people and he would dwell among us. That's promised again and again in the Old Testament law, throughout the prophets. It's just this theme that keeps coming and keeps coming and keeps coming. If you're doing one of these Bible in a year reading programs, look for that. Go hunt for that concept. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will dwell among you. I will live among you. I I will be in your midst. He just says that again and again and again. And here, what is John saying? John's saying, yeah, yeah, in Jesus. It's, It's finally happening in Jesus. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word is uh, to set up a tent, basically. You know, in the Old Testament, often the presence of God would come down and reveal himself through a tent, tent of meeting, the tabernacle. That's the same word here in the Greek. He's, he's trying to give us kind of an echo of the Old Testament. Yeah, Jesus came down, set up his tent. God came and met with us, but it was better than just a cloud or fire appearing over a tent like it did in the Old Testament. This is God in the flesh. This is called the doctrine of the incarnation, that God the Son took on flesh. He became fully human. We believe that he's both fully God and fully man. So one of the things we'll have to wrestle with throughout the Gospel of John is that Jesus, fully God, actually lived as a human. He gives us an example to follow of what it looks like to walk by the Spirit and pray to the Father and depend on God. It's real easy for us to think that Jesus cheated, right? Right? I know you go there, I go there. Well, yeah, but Jesus cheated. He was God, right? But the New Testament's pretty clear. He didn't cheat. He was God, but he lived as a person. He just lived as a perfect person. He was tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. Hebrews 4, 15. So what what does that look like? That's something for us to wrestle with as we study Jesus in the New Testament. He goes on in verse 14, says, we've seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. This only son, Uh, In the ancient translations, it's usually only begotten. Have y'all heard that phrase? It's in some of the creeds, only begotten. Here it says only son. Later on, it'll say only, again, the only God. And that word in Greek means unique or only. It means like a special relationship. And so by faith in Christ, we get to be the children of God. But that's a different sort of child of God than Jesus is. He's the only unique child of God, right? He has a unique position with God. He is the one who is eternally the Son of God, right? There's eternally Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that's just, again, one of those little things for us to try to keep straight, even though we fully, can't fully comprehend it. It's saying here he is the only Son, the uniquely uh, only begotten Son, the unique one that has a unique relationship with the Father, and he's full of grace and truth. Now, that's another echo of the Old Testament. Do you remember the story in Exodus chapter 34 where Moses is like, God, I want to see you. Can you reveal yourself to me? God says, well, I, I, I can't because if, if you look at me straight on, it'll melt your face off, right? He says, that's, that's my translation. It's like, you can't see me and live. So what we'll do is I'll like hide you in the rock, in the cleft of a rock, kind of in this crack. And I'll pass by and you'll, you'll like get to see the backside of my glory, right? It's kind of hard to translate. It's very mysterious. Basically, you can't look straight at God. You can't fully see God and survive, and when he does that, he proclaims his name. He says, this is who I am, which is really interesting, right? Like, so he's saying, you can't really see me and live, but you can see me as I tell you with my word who I am. So you'll get the fulfillment of it through my word. I'll reveal myself through my word. So God declares by his word who he is to Moses. And one of the phrases he says, he says a lot of things there in, in Exodus 34. One of the things he says is he is one, a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. In Hebrew, it's chesed and emet. And that can be translated as grace and truth. A lot of different ways to translate it. So often in the English, it's steadfast love and faithfulness. But that could just be as easily translated grace and truth. John's picking that up here. He's saying we've seen God. We've seen his glory, his grace and truth. And then in 15, he comes back to John the Baptist again. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me. Because he was before me, right? John the Baptist was even clear. He's from eternity past. Jesus existed before me, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He goes on and he says in verse 16, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. There's a lot of different translations of this, a lot of ways to translate this, but grace upon grace means there was grace in the Old Testament and now we have more grace in Jesus. So it can be grace against grace. It can be grace instead of grace, grace upon grace. It's like one of these very flexible uh, prepositions. It can mean a lot of different things. But but every way you translate it, you get the same idea, that he's saying God was gracious to his people in the Old Testament, but he's even more gracious in Christ. So be very wary of people that say there's like no grace in the Old Testament. Yeah, it's confusing. There's cultural distance, but there was grace there. God was gracious, and his law is gracious. When he gives us direction and says do this, and don't do that. That's gracious. He does it because he loves us. But it's even more clear and it's even fuller in Christ himself. There's grace upon grace in Christ. In verse 17, he says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law was good. The law was grace. but We have even, even more grace in Jesus. The way the author of Hebrews talks about it is like, The law was good, and there was nothing wrong with the the law. He talks about this in Hebrews 8. Um, The problem with the law is you and me, right? The law is God's revealed will. When God says, do this, don't do that, what's the problem with that? It's us. We're the problem. That's what he says in, in Hebrews chapter 8. He says the new covenant is different because it actually actuates the law in our hearts. He writes the law in our hearts. So it's not like we've changed laws. God still doesn't want you to murder people, Okay? The, the law is the same. It's just now in the new covenant through Christ, he's writing the law in our hearts. He's changing us from the inside out. And that's what John is trying to get across. That's what the author of the Hebrews writes. There's a lot of parallels here. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So there's that only word again, only begotten So it's only begotten Son, only begotten God, or uniquely or only is a way of saying he has a special relationship with the Father. He is truly unique. And it says he is at the Father's side. The old translation of that would be he's uh, at the Father's bosom. Um, In the Old Testament, uh, well, in the New Testament as well, we'll have these stories where they would lay around like a coffee table. This is how they would eat, right? They'd kind of lean on their elbows and eat off of a coffee table. And, uh, you know, we all sit up, up high on chairs, but they would be at low tables, and they would kind of lean on each other. Much more normal in their culture for us, I think, as uh, modern people, or at least in America, we're like, oh, that's a little bit too much touching for me, right? I know it makes some of you uncomfortable, um, but he's trying to signal this intimacy. Think of a father uh, and a son, or a father and a daughter. I grabbed a picture of a father and daughter at a daddy-daughter dance. One of my favorite things to do was take my two daughters to these daddy-daughter Valentine's Day dances, right? so fun and get to be close together. Last night I was watching a movie with my kids and, and my 17-year-old daughter is leaning, leaning her head on my shoulder, right? She's cold and I've got my arm around her and she's, she's leaning on me. There's a special relationship, right? Like I'm not going to sit and snuggle with all of you, but she's my daughter, right? So there's a, a special closeness there, right? You're, you're close in a special way with your friends or with your kids or with your spouse that's it's different from how you relate to everybody else. John is saying he has that kind of closeness to God. The, the same God that nobody can see, Jesus is close to him in that way. It's like he's sitting on the Father's lap. He's leaning on the Father's shoulder. It's this, this beautiful picture of, of intimacy and closeness. So none of us can see God, right? God told Moses, you can't see me and live, but you can kind of get a little glimpse of the trail of my glory as it goes by. But John says Jesus is one with God. He's intimate with God. And he reveals him to us the language here in verse 18 he says uh, the one who's at the father's side he has made him known and so the picture here we talked about this at christmas this is echoed in john 14 we see god by seeing jesus the way to god is is through jesus you can't get to god any other way except through jesus jesus makes him known jesus reveals him to us um, if you've ever been in a Bible study, sometimes this Greek word is thrown around. It's kind of a fancy word for Bible study, and the word is exegesis. you ever Anybody heard that word before? Exegesis. It really just means like to excavate, right, to pull the truth out of the text. So it's it's just a fancy word for Bible study. Sometimes we use that word because it's a, a, a Greek word, and um, I don't know, for some reason it makes us feel like we're closer to God when we use Greek words and stuff. But that's the word here for Jesus revealing the Father to us, right? So we use it for Bible study, right? Like I want to go and and dig out what's in here. I want to do some Bible study and and excavate what's in the text. I want to make God known by by seeing Him in the text. And here it's saying that that Jesus does that, right? Jesus makes God known. So we go to the text, and what we're doing right now is we're trying to get to know Jesus. We're digging in the text. like, who is Jesus? And as as we dig in the text... Jesus is digging out for us who God the Father is. He's revealing God to us. That's the only way for us to see God is is through Jesus himself. I want to challenge you in the new year to to recommit yourself. This is a great time to say, am I pursuing Jesus? Am I following him? Am I studying him? Am Am I reading the stories? Am I wrestling with who he is? Am I talking to him? Jesus, who are you? Show yourself to me. Reveal yourself to me. As we see Jesus, we see God. And that's our only hope. Again, we, we can't save ourselves. We, we need spiritual rebirth. We're saying there's no, there's no husband's will. There's no flesh. There's no blood that can give us the birth and the life that we need. We need to turn to the source of true light, to the source of true life, to Jesus himself. Who who is Jesus? He's the word that, that gives us life. Pursue him in the new year. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you give us life. I pray that you would draw our hearts to you in the new year. That more and more we would get excited about seeing how good you are. We'd get excited about learning all that you said and did when you took on flesh and walked among us. I pray that you would change us. God, I know a lot of us were skeptical. We've been promised so many different things in so many different places. Help us to have enough faith uh, to take the next step. Help us to have enough faith to take the next step of, of pursuing you, of talking to you, of looking at you in the word. Lord, I pray that your spirit would guide us in this, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.